1949, a mass revival broke out in northern Scotland on the island of Skye. If you're not quite sure where the island of Skye is, think about where Father Christmas lives. Santa Claus, just come down a very small distance and then you're in the north of Scotland, or it feels like that if you go there anywhere. Um, Before the revival, there was not one young person who attended public worship in in a church on the island. But God's power and his might came so powerfully and so spontaneously and beautifully that thousands and thousands of people, many of whom very young, literally dropped to their knees in repentance, were filled with the Holy Spirit and the whole community, the church, the whole island was radically transformed. People would enter into church services and before even a musician had played a note, before a preacher had said a word, the Holy Spirit would move and people would stay for hours after hours after hours encountering God's power and his goodness. Well, we're in a series thinking about what the church is for. And today we're going to go for the really big topic of prayer. As Nikki Gumbel says, prayer is the most important activity of our lives. It's the way in which we develop a relationship with our Father in heaven. Jesus prayed and taught us to do the same. Prayer brings us peace. It refreshes our souls. It satisfies our spiritual hunger and assures us of our forgiveness. Prayer not only changes us, but it also changes situations. God answers prayer. But let me ask you a question. Do you love prayer? Any, anyone love prayer? This guy, he loves prayer. Thank you. Um, Apparently, uh, something like 75% of all uh, Americans say that they pray regularly. 55% report to pray every single day. But I wonder if there might just be a few of us in this room who find prayer confusing, who find prayer difficult, who find prayer hard to figure out how to begin and what you're supposed to do and when you're supposed to do it. Well, you're not on your own either. Today, though, I'm really sorry that I'm not going to have a chance to go through all the mechanics of prayer, of how and when you're supposed to do it. I'm not even going to have a huge amount of time to talk about like, what happens when things don't work out exactly what, when we, how we expect them to. But I do have one quick recommendation for you before we launch in, which is this wonderful book by one of our friends. It's called How to Pray, A Simple Guide for Normal People. So if you are a normal person... This is a brilliant book about how to pray uh, on your own, particularly in your quiet times. But what I do want to look at today is I want to look at this idea of being a church that is a house of prayer. That when God talks of the church, he calls it a house of prayer for all nations. And so we're going to get our reading, which is in Isaiah 56. 1 through 7. Isaiah 56, 1 through 7. So, maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand. My righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain. I'm only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name. Better than sons and daughters, I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners will bind themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants. 
all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold first fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. So the book of Isaiah is a book which is a huge, beautiful, prophetic work that charts much of Israel's history. It's not so much about like what happened on this day and what happened on that day, but it's more about what God is doing in relation to his people. It charts the rebellion. It charts the exile and the sin and the brokenness. It charts them being carried away under, in, under the Babylonian Empire. But then, if you keep reading, it looks forward. It looks past that into a new kingdom, a new reality. It speaks actually specifically about a servant king who will one day come and serve his people be beaten and ultimately will die on behalf of them so that a new kingdom, a new reality, a new creation can take hold on the earth. That this king will take the story of God's chosen people and blast it out way beyond just a small group and out into the whole world. And I don't know if you noticed in that little reading, there were these two kind of surprising groups of people. There was the, the eunuchs, and if you don't know what a eunuch is, don't Google it. It's just, it's not, it's not necessary. Stop it. Like you're, you lot are Googling over there. Don't Google it. Um, but it's, 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 the eunuchs were people who could not have an offspring, so they were counted out of the people of Israel because there was no future for them. There was no lineage. And the foreigners also were counted out. They were not clean in the eyes of the Israelite view. But even them, even they are counted into this new story, this new creation that God is bringing. And by the way, if you, if you ever want to get a bit of an overview of what God is doing through the Old Testament, the Bible, and into the New, the book of Isaiah is an incredible thing to read. It's big, it's bulky, it's beautiful, it's full of beautiful imagery. Um, and if the idea of reading something that long kind of scares you, then you can YouTube the Bible Project videos on Isaiah because they are also amazing and will save you quite a lot of time if you want to do it that way. But in the passage we just read, twice you noticed these words that came up. My house will be a house of prayer. Isaiah 56, 7. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. God's desire for his church is that it would be a place, a house of prayer. So if you go back to um, Jewish history, you go all the way back to when people like Moses were alive, you see the way that God interacted with humans. You see these very specific, very powerful, very individual, precise encounters between God and one person. And then if you fast forward to the Israelite journey through the wilderness, when they're in there for 40 years, journeying towards the promised land, things look a little bit different. Because there you start to see God dwelling with his people in a particular time and space. You see the Ark of the Covenant, which is it's just a box in some ways, but it's where God's glory chooses to rest as the people journey through the desert. In fact, it's so holy, it's so other that if you were even to touch the box, touch the Ark of the Covenant, you could die. But then as you keep going through, you, you find God's people arrive into the promised land, into Israel. And, and there they build the first temple. King Solomon builds the temple. It's this huge building. And, and people would come to the temple to pray. 
They would come to worship. They would come to bring their sacrifices. And right in the middle of the temple was the Holy of Holies. It was a particular room where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. It was so other that it had a curtain which divided mere humanity from the presence of God. Nobody could go into the Holy of Holies except one priest, the high priest, and he could only go once a year. And when he went in, he had to have a rope tied around his waist so that if he went in and he died in the presence of God, they would be able to pull him back out of the Holy of Holies before he started smelling bad. Right? That's how like otherly the presence of God was. And, and the Israelites considered themselves to be a chosen and a set-apart nation precisely because God dwelled right there in the middle of their city, in the middle of their temple. But then, of course, if you keep going through the story, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, right next to the temple. And Jesus has some really fascinating things to say about the temple. The first thing he says is, specifically quoting that passage in Isaiah, do you know what he says in Matthew 21, 13? It's written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. Basically, they turned it into like a merch store. Like it was all about, people could come, they could get completely ripped off to buy their doves and their animals so that they could sacrifice and be right with God. But they were being charged extortionate prices. It was much more of a retail endeavor than it was anything to do with prayer. But as well as that, the people are going like, we come here to meet with God. We come here to experience his presence. We want to know what God's like. And you know what Jesus is doing? He's going, Hello, <laughs> like, hello, <laughs> like you're going, look, building, I'm right here. I'm right here amongst you. No longer is this thing about a building, it's about a person. It's about God dwelling. And, and we know that specifically because when Jesus died, two things happened, which are actually a bit beyond our Western understanding, but they're so profound if you came from a Jewish background. The first thing that happens is the moment that Jesus dies, it says in Matthew 27, 51, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. Basically, that barrier that held mere humanity, the mere mortals away from the presence of God was torn in two and people could literally walk in. But how did that happen? Well, it happened because of the second image which we read is that Jesus died as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, what happened in the temples that people would go with their sacrificial lambs, with their animals, and they would be slaughtered there and burned, which seems a bit weird to us, but it was about like paying a penalty, putting us the sins onto the animals so that then people could be right before God. But as Hebrews 10 says, this was a new reality. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. That when Jesus died, what he actually came to do was to take all of the weight of all of the sin, of all of the brokenness, of all of humanity for all time on his shoulders and pay it and deal with it and nail it to the cross. And he did it for you. And he did it for me. He did it so that now we have access to God. We can come into his presence. We can come into his glory. We've been made right with him.
And if you're maybe just visiting Vintage for the first time today and you're like, I don't really get the Christianity thing, like that is the crux of the matter, is that God loved you that much that he would die to deal with the brokenness and the shame and the sin and the darkness in your life and in mine so that we could be right with a holy God. But that isn't quite the end of the story either. Because, of course, on Easter Sunday, Jesus rises from the dead. And he says to those first followers, that first group of people, he says to them, you need to wait in Jerusalem. Wait right here. There's the temple. Wait right next to it and pray. And so they wait and they pray and they pray. And they must have been anxious and fearful and scared because the reason they were doing that is because Jesus said to them, if you wait, I'm going back to my father. I'm going back to the throne room. I'm going back to heaven but I'm going to send you someone. I'm going to send you the advocate. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And sure enough, they wait in that little room. And as they pray, the Holy Spirit comes. The third person of the Trinity, God, his presence, pours out in that room and it overwhelms them like tongues of fire rest on them and they are transformed by God's power and his presence. And the church is born. The church is born and suddenly amazing things. But you see, I want you to see the journey because the journey is actually really important. I've got a little diagram to show you up on the screen in my little scribblings. Right, here here it goes, right. So in the Old Testament, God's presence is in specific place, specific time for a specific group of people only in a very specific way. And then Jesus comes and Jesus blows out the doors around specific people. He blows out the doors around specific nation. He blows out the doors about men and women and young and old. And he says, no, this is for, my, for the world. And then the Holy Spirit comes and suddenly God's power rushes through the church. Now, I don't know if I explained that really well, but I want you to see the difference there. Where is God's presence in the Old Testament, in the temple? Where is God's presence when Jesus is on life with Jesus? Where is God's presence and power today? With the Spirit-filled church. You don't look very like, no, come on, this is like a big deal. This is a big deal. You should be up for this. The church is the conduit, therefore, if you follow that through, of blessing of healing, of worship, of sacrifice, it flows through the church. And just in case you think I I made that up, I didn't didn't make it up. As, As 1 Peter 2 says, you also, like living stones, you the church, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. You're not a physical house, not one with walls, but a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. I don't know if you see it. Where is God's presence honed? Within the spiritual body of the church. Who are the priests who mediate God's presence backwards and forwards? We are the church. How is it possible that our sacrifices are made okay to God through Jesus Christ? And the incredible thing is that all of it works. All of it occurs through prayer. Through prayer. Through this relational, two-way interaction that is now made possible and amazing and intimate and real to us because of Jesus. That now we have FaceTime 
with the throne room, that now we have access to God himself. Billy Graham puts it much better than me, unsurprising. He says, prayer is the rope that pulls God and man together, but it doesn't pull God down to us. It pulls us up to him. You see, a praying church is one which is the holy priesthood. It is one which is the temple. It is one which can bring holy and acceptable sacrifices to God. It's one that can see God move in massive and incredible ways. And we are the church. Right? It's why I've been trying to say for the last like three, four, five like weeks, if not years of my life, like we have to stop thinking of ourselves as going to church. Right? We have to stop thinking of ourselves as like, oh, I go to that church in the morning, I go to that one in the afternoon because that one's got great kids ministry and that one's got better parking or that one's got good donuts or the heating works in that church or like, I don't know, they've got much better seats than pews. Or like, and, and think of ourselves almost as like tourists or consumers of churches. Like, oh yeah, like I just got a bit out of that, I got a bit out of that, I get a bit out of that. No, because simply this, we are the church. We are the stones of the church. We are the temple which God has created. We are the home by which his presence chooses to dwell, which simply means this. Either we do it and we are the church, or we don't. But we don't just stand on the outside observing or critiquing or watching it. We show up and we do it, or we don't. So let's go back, though, to Isaiah for a minute. What does Isaiah say? What does God say of this community? of what is supposed to be true in this new kingdom. Verse 1. Maintain justice. Do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, keeps their hand, uh, keeps their hands from, I've lost the next bit, uh, keeps, keeps their hands from doing any evil. What does God say about this kingdom people? No one's excluded. It's a house of prayer for all nations. It's a conduit of communication between God and the whole world. It's about justice reigning on the earth. But I think it, it means, therefore, that two things should always be true of a church. A Holy Spirit-filled church, two things should be true. The first one is, is that it should be marked by the presence of God. The presence of God. Hebrews 4. Let us then approach God's throne. Let us, the church, approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. There's supposed to be something about the church where people go, oh yeah, that's where God is. There's something about that group of people that there is something different about them. You know, sometimes people come and visit Vintage and they'll come and see me after the service and they'll be like, hey, I've not really been into the church thing before, but something about you guys, like some, something going on there, like what, what is going on there? Can you just tell me why I sort of cried or why I felt like I did? And I'm like, yeah, I can tell you why you cried. It wasn't the bad preaching. <laughs> like, <laughs> you cried because God's presence drew near to you. Because God dwells in this place. It's why, because when we get together on 9.45 on a Sunday morning, the first prayer we always pray is this, come Holy Spirit. It's not that God isn't present if we don't pray that prayer. It's just that like any relationship, God loves to be asked to come and do things. Laura and I, we live in the same house. We're married. We've been married for like 15 years. But she loves it and I love it when one of us says, hey, 
will you come and, and have dinner with me? Will you just come and sit with me? Or can we sit on the couch and talk about something? And the Holy Spirit's exactly the same. The Holy Spirit loves to be invited to come and move in a group of people. That's why we, we have this value at Vintage of intimacy with God. Because we know that God wants to dwell and move amongst us. And when we had our, our third birthday celebration this last week, we had a day of prayer, prayer and fasting. And I think people were like, what are you doing? Like, why would you fast on your birthday? I'm like, the reason we do it, because I couldn't think of anything better to possibly do than hang out with Jesus, right? To hang out in God's presence, to invite him to come and move amongst us, to worship him. And sure enough, guess what happened? As we worshiped him, as we invited into that upper room upstairs, his presence came and brought transformation, healing and beauty and goodness. And if you missed it, there'll be another one in a couple more months' time. Right? Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. There's supposed to be something about the church where people walk in and go, God is there. Richard Foster, prayer catapults us onto the frontier of the spiritual life. Now that has huge implications if you think about it. It has implications about our own times of prayer, about our spiritual dis disciplines. It has implications where, because what always happens when you come into the presence of an almighty God is that actually the first person to change is usually you. <laughs> so it has all sorts of implications about our own way that we're being formed and shaped as we become a praying people. We realize it's not just transactional, but it's relational. It's about a God who loves us, wanting to spend time with us. But it also has this other huge implication, which is that the church, therefore, is a house of power, presence and power. You know, sometimes people say, like, oh, man, I'm praying for you. Or, like, you know, my, we say, how was your week? And the person goes, like, oh, you know, just had a terrible time with my boss. Or, and what's our response? Oh, I'm, I'm gonna, I'll pray for you, brother. Now, it's a kind of standard phrase, but what it basically means is, I'm not going to pray for you, brother. It's like, I, I'm so sorry. It's, it's like sympathy, isn't it? Or like, oh, bless you, bless you, right? Which is just like, I, I'm sorry that you're going through it. Well, that's a long way short, actually, of what prayer is supposed to look like in a church. Because actually, prayer changes things. Prayer changes things. And I want to show you, again, I got a little bit of my scribbly drawing, which I want to show you about how prayer works, therefore, in the life of the church. And when I talk about prayer, I mean intercession and like asking and talking about God because God loves us and he's powerful and he wants us to ask us things. So see if you can follow this, this bit of thinking through. So on the left-hand side, upward arrow. So how do we pray? Well, someone says, you know, Ben, you know, I'm really hurting or I've, I've got sickness or I've got need or I need God's provision or I need, you know, God to heal me in some way. So we, we see something that's in the world that's broken, right? We see something that seems a bit broken. And then we pray. The church, full of the Holy Spirit, intercedes. We ask God to do something. In fact, it says in Scripture that the Holy Spirit helps us even to form the word so we know what to pray. We pray through Jesus. Jesus, who is now at the right hand of the Father in heaven, interceding with us and for us. So we're going, God, would you do this? And, the whole, and Jesus is in heaven going, yes, I'm going to pray for you in that. We're going to see, we want to ask God for that. And then God the Father receives the prayer. 
He receives the prayer. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. This is the prayer in heaven. In case you just think I made that up and it sounds weird, Charles Spurgeon, God the Holy Ghost writes our prayers. God the Son presents our prayers. And God the Father accepts our prayers. And with the whole Trinity to help us, what cannot prayer perform? But here's the second half of the story, which is the bit we often miss. Let's go back to that diagram for a moment, if that's okay. Okay, so then what happens? God's, God's in heaven. He receives our prayer. God, would you heal Adam of his beard? Like, can you do something immediately, right? What does God say? Three things God can say. No. <laughs> Number one, God can say no. No, it's a great beard. Don't take the beard away. Number two, God can say not yet. The beard will come off, but not yet. Not yet. Number three, though, God can say yes. Yes. We're going to do something. So then what happens? From the throne room of heaven, the edict comes. God is going to move. But how does he move? He moves through Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and out into the world. Right? But I missed one thing. Because you might think, oh, okay. Right? So we pray for something to happen. God, uh, my friend John, like he's really sick. Can you heal him? We pray, and then what God from heaven miraculously heals John on his way to the metro home. Can that happen? Yes, it can. Does it usually happen like that? No. And there's a reason it doesn't usually happen like that, because as we pray from the church, in the power of the Spirit, through the name of Jesus to the throne room, the way that God therefore chooses to act is basically the same. From God, through Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and through the church into the world. Right? When we pray for healing, what do we do? We lay hands on people. We're involved, we're in the story. It's not just a, like, a token thing where we say, God, would you do it, and then we walk away. No, we're part of the healing. God works through the church because the Holy Spirit flows through the church, right? If, if, how many times have you prayed a prayer like this? Like, God, I, this, my friend, my friend like, they just desperately need some, some help, some provision. And miraculously, like God moves a whole bunch of Christians to, to gather some money together who they don't know and put it in an envelope and put it through their door or something like that. God can work independently of the church, but he usually doesn't. Out of his goodness and his kindness, he chooses to use us in the praying and also in the answer to the prayer. John 15, if you remain in me, if you, the church, remain in me, Jesus, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it'll be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing, uh, showing uh, yourself to be my disciples. Like, I know there's complexity in that. <laughs> I know you're going like, but why doesn't it always work? But it is ultimately God's desire that the church would be a place of power where God's spirit moves. I shared the story a while ago, but it's so good. I just got to share it again. A bunch of years ago, there was a massive outbreak of gang violence on the streets of Pasadena. People were being shot on street corners. And the police were overrun. They had no idea how to fix it. And so they wrote to the senior pastors of the city saying, would the church pray? And the church 
gathered and fasted and different churches around the city prayed. In fact, they went out on the street corners as well and ministered to people. And after a few months, the situation radically changed, completely changed. Gang violence stopped largely. And the police chief of Pasadena wrote to the churches of the city, and this is what he said, thank you for teaching us about the power of prayer. Right? The city understands the power of prayer. The police department understands the power of prayer. But I wonder, does the church understand the power of prayer sometimes? I hope so. <laughs> it's why every week, if you come to Vintage, we have prayer ministry. And it's not just empathy. It's not just, it's not just someone being nice in the corner. Like, it's actually because we believe that when we pray, things change. Sometimes we have specific words, we have specific pictures because we think God is highlighting a certain thing that he wants to do. But that isn't the only thing God wants to do. Like I have this dream that one day we say it's prayer ministry and people would everyone just run down the front and there'd be lines up the aisles for prayer because we pray together and God does things. That's why we intercede at various points in every single gathering that we ever have. Prayer works, it does things, things change. But I want to show you a little bit about how it can work, because I know this can feel a bit weird and theoretical. And so at the beginning of the week, I asked a couple of people in this church, I said, I know that God's done something mighty in your life about prayer and doing something. So would you, would you just record a little quick video to tell us about what prayer and the church looked like for you? So I want you to watch these couple of quick little videos about prayer. Oh, 14, 15 years ago, I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease for which there's no cure. Doctors said that I would need to learn how to manage my symptoms because it was gonna be a lifelong process. A few months after this diagnosis, I received a word from God in which he promised me complete physical healing and I believed him, but it wasn't immediate. As is with God, his timing is not ours and his way of doing things is definitely not the way we would do things. God used many different ways to bring healing, but perhaps the most essential and fundamental one was the role of the church particularly in communal prayer. In Bogota, Colombia, my church walked alongside me for many, many years, believing, praying, having faith that God was going to make good on his promise. But little did we know that God had more than physical healing in mind. Throughout that time, he brought mental, emotional, and spiritual healing as well. I believe that God is always up to our transformation. He wants us to become more like him to find healing from the past, to discover a purpose for our present and future, to love better. And through these times, these difficult times, I learned how to become vulnerable. I allowed to be able to enter into the ugliness of my situation, into the pain, into the hurt. The people in my church learned how to walk empathetically with me. It strengthened my faith, it strengthened their faith. About a year ago, when we arrived, before coming to the States, I was medically cleared. God had completed the miracle. And I was able to share this with my church and it was a momentous and joyous occasion. Thank God that the church is a house of prayer. Hi everyone. Um, we just wanted to share our family planning uh, journey with you guys to give you guys hope for um, prayer and the power of prayer and the comfort that it brings. So our family planning journey was met with a lot of difficulty through multiple miscarriages, which was a really lonely time for me, uh, for us, because I didn't really know how to share that. And also, um, 
it's just a weird thing to share with people. But um, when we had the opportunity to do IVF, we um, really felt led to share with our community group to share in the whole process step-by-step, even from the beginning, because we didn't want it to just be um, something that they celebrate with us with a happy ending or pray for us with a sad ending. We just really wanted them to walk with us step-by-step. So, um, yeah, so we, we asked them to basically walk with us and pray for us um, through the retrieval, through the transfer, through the whole pregnancy, um, which seemed like a long time, actually. But, um, but with them, we found such hope and um, comfort and just even understanding that no matter the outcome, we know that they were behind us. And that was really comforting for us. Yeah, so to piggyback on what Jin said, um, really did give us hope because we have a community group praying for us at the time and uh, really gave us a lot more comfort during our journey because not only we weren't doing this alone, we were also, uh, we also had our support from our community group and 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 along with our community and our church. So um, it really helped us during this journey and we're eternally grateful for our community group and and our church community as well. And and one thing they forgot to mention is they had a baby girl uh, (laughs) called Astrid who we dedicated uh, a few months ago. Now I wanted to show you that because sometimes we can then translate the theology of prayer into like Instacart and we're like oh okay God sought that out and every time we get exactly what we wanted all, all the time. Of course, that's not quite how prayer, prayer works. In both of those examples, it was complex. It was longer than they would have hoped it would have been. There was pain in the journey. There was struggle. But in both of them, the, the church walked alongside these people, witnessing, praying, interceding, banging on the doors of heaven, saying, God, would you move? And in both instances, over a period of time, miraculous answers and provision happened. Now, I know that there's so much that we would want to ask God about why these two wonderful groups of people got an incredible miraculous healing. And why sometimes, maybe even this morning, there are those of us who haven't seen that and we wish that we'd seen that. We want to ask why God, it does take time and it doesn't happen instantly. As David Jeremiah says, answers to prayers have to be on God's schedule, not ours. He hears us pray, and he answers according to his will in our time. I know there are lots of questions, but what I also know is what John Wimber says is when we as the church pray for no one, nobody gets healed. But when we as the church pray for lots and lots of people, people get healed. So what is our responsibility as the church? It is to be a house of prayer. To be a place where God's love and his power and his goodness and his presence flows through us. But two other quick things I want to say before we get to actually pray. The first is is that prayer almost always, if not always, involves repentance. Repentance. 2 Chronicles 7. If my people, there you are, the church, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face 
and turn from their wicked ways, then I will heal from heaven, hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. You see that? It's almost a little bit like a bit of coding, right? If my people, the church, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and will pray and will seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. James 5 in the New Testament, the Bible. Therefore, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray to each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now, let's be honest. We would much rather that this little bit wasn't there. It would be much more convenient if there was no place of repentance needed or confession. That's just uncomfortable and it can be a bit embarrassing sometimes. But yet there seems to be something about the church on its knees. The church which recognizes its desperate need for salvation, its desperate need for healing, which recognizes sometimes it's in a bit of a mess, which calls out and God chooses to move. There is something about the constant process of humility and prayer and hunger and repentance. But here's what's supposed to happen then, is that it overflows the walls of the church and it transforms the world, right? Just like we said last week about blessing, the point of prayer is not that the church becomes this incredible place where everyone is healed up and healthy and blessed and has a huge smile on their face when all around everything else is in darkness and brokenness, no. The point of the move of God and the power of prayer is that the world is transformed as the church prays. I want to finish by just telling you the rest of that story from the Outer Hebrides. That massive move of God in the 1940s, it began with some church pastors standing up in front of their congregations and reading this statement out. Now, if you know anything about Scotland, you can probably... You can probably get your own accent out for this statement, and you'll spot it in a minute. But they asked their church leaders to read out this, that there is a low state of vital religion throughout the land, and a present dispensation of divine displeasure due to the growing carelessness towards public worship, and the growing influence of the spirit of pleasure which has taken hold of our younger generation. Serious, isn't it? They called on the churches to take these matters to heart and to make serious inquiry on what must be the end if there be no repentance. We call upon every individual as before gone to examine his or her life in light of that responsibility which attends to us all and that happily in divine mercy we may be visited with a spirit of repentance and turn again to the Lord whom we've so grieved. I think you'd be angry if I read that out every week, vintage. But there were two sisters who were in one of those congregations and you heard those words. One of the sisters was 84 years old. The other one was 88 years old and completely blind. And the blind sister one night had a vision of the church is completely packed again to the rafters full of worshippers. And so the next day they went to see their, their pastor. And the pastor said to them, what do you think we should do? What, she said, give yourself to prayer. Give yourself to waiting upon God. Get your elders and your deacons together and spend at least two nights a week waiting upon the God in prayer. If you will do that at your end of the parish, my sister and I will do it at our end of the parish from 10 o'clock at night until 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. 88-year-old. And you know what they did? For three months they prayed. And you know what happened? Nothing. 
Nothing happened for three months until one night when there was, they were desperately crying out to the Lord. This one young church leader said, I don't know if we have repented of our own sins. I don't know if we've got on our own needs. And so he literally knelt down in this meeting and he prayed. And as he prayed, the Holy Spirit just went crazy through that place. He was overwhelmed by God's love and his goodness. And just the Holy Spirit moved powerfully throughout that island. And people would be out of like the pubs and the clubs late at night and they would walk past churches they would hear the noise of things going on in churches they'd get as far as the graveyards and they would fall to their knees in repentance being radically overwhelmed and transformed by God's love the most hardened criminals on the islands radically and instantly were transformed by God's love but it started with a little group of church leaders and two old ladies prepared to repent, prepared to humbly get on their knees and cry out day after day after day, night after night after night for God to move on their island. And I wonder, are we that desperate for God to move today? Where does God move? He moves where he's wanted. He comes where he's asked. Are our lives in that place where we're so submitted to Christ, where we're so prepared to to deal with the messes that we've got in our lives, where we're so prepared to repent of them and then come to Jesus in just desperation and intercession for our churches and for our world that God would say, yes, I will come and I will heal your land. Because, you know, as we go into our fourth year as Vintage Church, like I can tell you some things. I can tell you we do not have enough gifting, resourcing, personality, a building. We don't have enough of anything that we need to see the world around us transformed. We don't. I don't have enough as a pastor. I don't have enough as a husband. I don't have enough as a dad. I don't have enough as a friend to see people around me transformed. But I know someone who can. And I know that he's willing. And so I want us to pray, if that's okay. And um, then we'll come to some worship and some particular words from the prayer team. So um, I just want to. I want to just offer that invitation um, to us, and and I know those kind of words like repentance, and they're just difficult words, and we don't like them very much. And, and yet, I want to just have some space for a moment, um, just some quiet, and I, I want to invite the Holy Spirit to come and move amongst us. And in the gentle and loving way that he so often does, I just want to invite him, if he wants to, to just highlight some things maybe that we need to do some business with the Lord, the Lord with. So just where you are in the the quiet and the stillness. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit.